Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you've slipped in, my name's Ryan. I am the youth and worship pastor here at Chilton and excited to be sharing with you. Um, let me just pray briefly for us as we jump in to our, our last of the parables. Now, Father God, thank you for the blessing it is to meet together. Thank you for the privilege that we get to come in and hear your word, to be encouraged by your Holy Spirit, to be encouraged by one another, and to be lifted up. Thank you, God, you are the lifter of our heads. And so I pray, God, that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate the truths in your word, that we would see and understand and experience and encounter you through your word. I pray, God, won't you just give me conviction and clarity as I speak, that we would understand and know what it is you are leading us into and what it is you are saying to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wonderful. So we're, we're wrapping up our uh, mini section series of parables. We're going through the book of Mark this year, and we've been on a, a long journey seeing about the, the story of Jesus, how he was born and baptized and raised, and some of the miracles he's been doing, and seeing how people have been responding to him. There's been a few stories of people rejecting Jesus, responding to his ministry, responding to his word. And uh, we come to the section, which, which in my mind I still see as stories at the seaside, because Jesus hops into a boat, and he starts to teach in stories. He starts to teach in parables, and, and parables really have two functions, and we've, we've touched on this before, but just briefly, these parables for Jesus are a way that he is commenting on what's been happening so far, on how people have been responding, on how people have, have responded to his message and to his ministry, and so in some ways, this is Jesus almost commenting on, on what's happened on how people have responded and what that means and why they are doing that. But it's also a way for him to encourage his followers and to explain about the kingdom, to, to reveal and teach different things about the kingdom. And so we've got these four parables that we've looked at. We're on the fourth one today. And the first two are really about those responses, right? The, the first one, the big one, the parable of the sower that we looked at, he actually highlights these ways people respond, that they, some people are like a path where they just, they're just not interested. It's just hard ground. The seed's not even going in. Some people are like thorns where when there is a reception of the word that it grows, but there's all these cares of the world, these desires for other things and the, the love of wealth and riches. And so it doesn't bear fruit. But some people are like, like the rocky place where there's hardships and the roots haven't gone deep. They've received it quickly, but there hasn't been a, a real sense of, of receiving it properly. And so when there's hardship, there's no root. And so they fall away. And, and this is Jesus commenting on the people who have responded to his ministry in different ways. And he says, the people who really benefit, the people who bear fruit are those who respond like good soil, who receive what he's saying, receive his teaching. And then there's this parable of light, and it's about not just responding to Jesus' word, which is what the sower parable is about, but it's about responding to Jesus himself, that he is the light of the world, and, and you don't bring a light to, to put a lampshade over it, to cover it up. You use light so that you might see. And so he's saying, I am the light, and, and how you respond to me doesn't make sense if you're just going to cover me up, if you're not going to deal with what I'm here for and what I'm saying. 
But the next two parables are then actually more about the nature of the message, the nature of the kingdom. And so last week, there was a parable about the seed that grows and how it it continues to grow. That is the nature of the kingdom, that despite the responses that people make, the kingdom grows. That despite the rejection, the seed will grow and bear fruit because that is the nature of the kingdom. And then today, we're looking at a parable, another seed parable, parable of the mustard feed. I feel bad for the light parable because it doesn't quite fit into the, the theme, does it? You've got the sower, you've got the growing seed, you've got the mustard seed, and you've got the light guy who's sort of awkwardly hanging out there. And this really highlights the origin and the outcome of the kingdom. You see, the, the comparison is not just to the mustard seed, but to what happens to the mustard seed and why it's significant that it becomes great despite its humble origins. And so just to give you a a roadmap for where we're going this morning, um, we're going to look at this parable and then I want to draw out a principle from the parable. And then we're going to look at this conclusion. Mark gives a a brief two verse conclusion statement to this whole section. And from there, I want to then bring us a challenge and, and hopefully encourage us to step forward. So let's, let's read together Mark chapter 4, verses 30. And Jesus said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. See, Jesus is, is almost giving us one of those classic before and after images. It's like, I don't know if you've seen those in the magazines where they're advertising this amazing diet or this amazing like, um, you know, medicine that's going to help you like, lose weight or gra- grow a six-pack overnight. And, and it's a before and after snapshot, right? It's a before and after. He's saying, this is what the kingdom appears like, and, and the responses that you're making are responding to what it's like before. But there is an after coming, and the after actually is very surprising, right? It's very surprising. The mustard seed is originally tiny. And it's not the only time Jesus uses the mustard seed this way because in Jewish culture, the mustard seed was something that symbolized insignificance. It's something that symbolized something that was small and weak and fragile. And so it's the smallest seed on the earth, but it grows. And this is Jesus commenting on the kingdom. He's saying it becomes something that when you look at it, you go, I I don't quite understand how that came from something so small becomes the largest shrub in the garden, the greatest plant. The outcome is surprising given its origin, right? And Jesus is not making a factual statement here. I'm sure there's someone potentially who's going, well, actually, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed in the world. But Jesus is not giving us a botany lesson, right? He's not trying to give us a factual statement about the seed. He's using an illustration that they would have understood to make a point about the kingdom. That the kingdom, though it appears, particularly at this time in history, small, insignificant, tiny, that it is going to grow into something great and glorious, something surprising. I mean, who doesn't love a good origin story, right? Who doesn't love a good origin story? One of my favorite movies in the Marvel universe, yes, I'm going to go into Marvel, sorry, okay, is Captain America, 
right? And you've got the story of this weak, I mean, it looks kind of weird. They use CGI, it just doesn't work because you've got this tiny body and you've got Chris Evans' head and it's just too big for the body. But nonetheless, that's the point. He's meant to be this weak and fragile and tiny person, right? And he does have some virtue. He's brave and courageous. He like jumps on the grenade and I get chills every time. I'm like, come on, you can do it, Captain. But he goes into this, he goes into this chamber Got carried away there. He goes into this chamber and he goes through this process of growth. They inject him with something akin to steroids, but you know, because it's a superhero movie, we'll look over that. But they inject him with this serum and he comes out with this amazing six pack and these arms and he's just like massive. And you go, wow, he's huge. How did that superhero come from that? Right? And they took a few shortcuts. It's not a perfect analogy, but we like a good origin story. Right? Or if we jump into football, again, I'm sorry for those who this doesn't click with, but classic Jamie Vardy having a party. Right? Who didn't, who, even people who didn't watch football loved the whole Leicester City fiasco, the story, the amazing um, outcome of that. And you've got this, this guy who was playing, as a, he was part-time, he was working as a factory worker, playing his football, and now he's winning the Premier League. Top scorer, just like crazy and they like people talking about movies and all this stuff and it's just such a great origin story those are always the best stories where there's a there's this outcome that just seems so surprising given the origin and so Jesus is talking about the kingdom and how it has small beginnings but great outcome small beginnings but great outcome and you might be thinking well actually I mean the church is actually quite big nowadays like you know we see Jesus doing all these miracles but really at first glance particularly at this point in the story the kingdom has small outcomes consider this it starts with a feeble baby boy in a dirty manger in Bethlehem God as a baby the savior of the world in a manger in a cradle right and he grows up grows up the son of a carpenter, right? Without riches, without power, without natural human worldly authority, not much to his credit, without a home once he leaves. His followers aren't really that great at first glance. Fishermen, poor, unlearned, not the first pick on a team set out to change the world. Right? If you were standing there and you're picking your team to go and change the world, these guys would not be top of your list. They did not have things from a worldly standpoint that would make you go, wow, these guys are going to change the world. And then, of course, this supposed Messiah, the supposed Savior, well, how does he come to the end? He gets crucified as a criminal, surrounded by criminals, deserted by his followers, betrayed by one of them, and forsaken. I mean, the story doesn't sound very great then, does it? But there is a turn, because this is the mustard seed, but it's going to become something great and glorious. It already has started to grow, as we see the church has grown. Jesus is noting how people are seeing this, they're seeing him, they're hearing this message, and they're responding not in a very positive way, but he is saying to them, he is warning them, he is, he is keying them in, that the outcome is going to surprise you. That like this tiny mustard seed goes through this process of growth, it will ultimately be greater than any other plant. The kingdom of God will marvelously outshine the greatest of kingdoms the earth has ever seen. 
Because the seed of the gospel is destined to bloom to the glory of God. It starts as a seed that is eaten by birds. It then becomes a plant where birds build their homes. It goes from bird food to bird refuge, right? It is amazing how the kingdom will grow. And already we see glimpses of this today. The church has power today. And it's not a perfect kingdom at the moment, but Jesus is coming. That's what we've remembered. And he will be our perfect king who will restore things. And then we will see the glorious shrub that started as a seed. But I want to draw a principle out of this. Okay, because it's great to talk about the kingdom and how the kingdom's going to be this great, amazing thing that will be so surprising considering, again, how it started. But there is a principle here for us to take courage from, a principle that God loves to work in weakness. I want to draw your attention to a few verses. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is, is writing to the church, and he says this, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's pattern. This is how he works. See, this passage is talking about us. It's talking about people. It's talking about Christians. This is the, the, the sheet of requirements that God is looking for. When he's picking his team, he's going foolish, weak, low, despised. He's not looking for strong, mighty, wise, independent people. He's looking for people who lean not on their own understanding, but trust. They go, I don't have much to give, and so I'm just going to trust God to use me. He removes he, he removes every option for boasting. Every option for boasting. Because God doesn't get glory when we succeed on the basis of our strength. He, he gets glory when despite the origin, despite the situation, despite the weakness, there is triumph. He almost uses weakness as a springboard for glory and triumph. James chapter 2 says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? It's God's promise to those who are, who are poor, and that's not just to do with money, poor in so many different senses. He has chosen and promised to those who are poor in the world, but, but who remain rich in faith that they will inherit the kingdom. He's not seeking those who, who are rich in the world, but poor in faith. That's not the requirement. His promise to faithful paupers is they will be eternal princes and princesses in the kingdom. Pauper to prince. This is how God loves to work. And that should encourage us because I think we all know we have weaknesses, we have flaws. But the Bible is full of stories of God choosing flawed and weak people to accomplish his purposes for his own glory. When he's speaking to the tribe of Israel, he says to them, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest. In fact, the scripture says, I chose you because you were the smallest and weakest of the tribes. 
when he chooses this king to be anointed, David, he's the youngest son, the one who's out with the sheep. He wasn't even in contention. Warms your heart, doesn't it? Right? He chooses Paul in the New Testament, who was a, a murderer, a destroyer of churches. He then chooses him to be his church planter, to take out the message and write over half of the New Testament. And this is why Paul, in one of his letters, later on in the Corinthian letters, he actually starts to, to boast in his weakness. He says, I won't boast in my strengths. I won't boast in my credentials, but I'll tell you what I'll boast in, in my weakness, because God has said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so I want to call us to this, to, to own our weakness. Let's own our weaknesses. Let's not hide them. Let's not deny them. And I drew so much courage from the story of Moses. I was just thinking about this. I was like, wow, what an amazing example. Moses is the first prophet that God uses, and he's the one God uses to rescue his people out of slavery. You might know the story. You can read it in Exodus. But Moses has this encounter with God. And God just speaks to him and says, I want to send you to the Pharaoh to go and speak to Pharaoh and to, to ask him to release my people. I'm going to use you to redeem, to rescue my people who are trapped in slavery, right? And Moses is a bit hesitant. He doesn't feel like he's up to the task. He doesn't feel like he's quite, you know, got the credentials to be used by God in this powerful way. I mean, who of us can't relate to that? Who of us can't relate to the fact that we might feel we don't have the credentials to be used by God? And so listen to what Moses says. He says, but, always a good way to start a sentence when you're speaking to God, but, as if God doesn't know the answer, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. I can't talk proper. I know speak good is essentially what Moses is saying. It's like, I, I don't, you want to use me as a prophet, as your mouthpiece? I, I know speak good. I can't do this. And what's interesting is God doesn't do what we might expect. He doesn't correct him and say, no, 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 Moses, you can speak good. Like, you are good. You can do this. You've got great language. Don't knock yourself down. Don't lower your self-esteem. He doesn't try to cheer him up and puff him up with weak encouragement about his self-esteem. That's not true. So what does he do? What does God, how does God respond to Moses' inferiority? He says, well, who has made man's mouth? Who's made man's mouth? Is it not I? the Lord. And then he says, therefore go and I will be with your mouth. God points to his own power as the creator. He points to his own greatness. He says, yes, Moses, you're not great. That's okay. You don't have to be. I don't expect you to be this perfect individual with the perfect credentials. I'm agreeing with you. You know, speak good, but I will be with your mouth because I created your mouth. I am the one with the power, with the strength, with the provisions, with the riches that you need. You just have to trust me. He gives him a promise. And so if God tells you, meets with you, encounters you and says he wants to use you, and you're thinking, but I've got weaknesses, I've got flaws, God knows. He knows. And what he gives you is a promise. It's a promise that he gives at the end when he gives the Great Commission. Go out and make disciples, and I will be with you. Go out and make disciples, and I will be with you. He says the same thing to Joshua. Have I not be commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For why? The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's God's presence that gives us courage, not our own strength. 
our weaknesses and our flaws are just a platform for God's glory. In fact, our weaknesses have been woven into us so that God might use them powerfully to display His glory through us. I, I was reflecting, and I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but I will anyway. I was reflecting on, on myself in high school, and you know, I'm a pastor now. Part of my job is doing this, is sharing, is speaking up front, and I have vivid memories of standing up in class doing oral examinations with my little sheets of paper shaking and guys at the back laughing. And why are you shaking? Now, I'm, I'm genuinely not looking for pity. I'm totally okay with that. But I just remember then God saying, okay, well, you know, I want you to share this word. I was 16 the first time we had a youth club and our youth club was pretty decently big. It had, had over 200 people. And I want you to get up in front of them and share something. And I was like, um... I don't know about that. You know, I had a Moses moment. I know speak good. I know speak good. And I remember feeling sick in the shower, like, oh, I don't want to do this. But I knew I had to. And I probably didn't have a perfect understanding of why I was obeying. And you go through seasons. But I trusted that God was going to give me the words. And I think it was one of the most key moments for me where I trusted, okay, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to trust God. And this is not the same as the Jamie Vardy story where it's about perseverance and growth and learning. And yes, you learn and you gain skills and God helps you. The main point is God gets the glory. Not, oh, look how he persevered. Oh, look how he, he did great. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Because the moment you allow some pride in there, God will humble you again. It's about God, about Him. And so Mark now closes this section. We read in verse 33, with, my, with many such parables, He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to His own disciples, He explained everything. And so Mark lets us know these are just some of the parables. He's collected these ones for a reason. Right, Jesus is using them to teach his word and he's adapting to the audience. He's, he's teaching as they're able to hear. He's bouncing off of them. But what I really want to highlight is that last little section where he says that privately he would spend time with his disciples explaining everything. And I want to encourage us. It's a challenge, but it's an encouragement. That is still available to us today. That is still available to us today. This invitation to be with Jesus privately is available and it is so essential. It is critical that we are regularly spending time connecting with Jesus. If you've been in church long enough, you will have potentially heard this phrase, the quiet time. Right? I think it comes from, from uh, different translations of Mark 6 and Matthew 6 where Jesus has come to a quiet place with me. Find a quiet place. And I, and I want to look at Matthew 6 because there's a phrase in there that I actually just really love when I talk about this. It says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Right? And I don't always like the phrase quiet time. I understand it. I'm not like against it. This isn't like an anti-quiet time thing. It's just they don't always have to be quiet. Right? It doesn't always have to be quiet. But I think what's trying to be conveyed in that phrase, quiet time, is what's conveyed in this awesome idea, shut the door. Right? Shut the door. Yes, come on, say it again. It conveys this idea of privacy and, and no distraction because we are all busy. We are all busy. But we should learn to shut the door. 
See, time is like money. We've been speaking about this with the pursuit um, guys, about spending time with God. And I was saying to them, guys, if I had to give you, you know, 50 pounds, and we had a list of things that we needed to buy, but they were, you know, the, the, the amount that you have to spend is not as, as much as what you need to get the things. What will you do? It's an obvious answer. You prioritize. And time is like that. We have to budget our time. And how do you make decisions when you budget? You prioritize. And so what you think is important, you will find time for it. And I can't think of anything more important than privately connecting with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean I walk away and think I, I get this perfect every day. I don't. I don't think any of us do. But I know that when we learn to prioritize this and we learn to value it as we should, we will shut the door. We will make an effort to shut the door. And so I thought I'd give just three, for lack of a better word, tips to just to, to get this going. This might be something you wrestle with. And, and here are three tips just to close. And the first one is this, begin. Just start, right? I, I know I have this tendency. I'm like, mm, I'll start on a Monday because Monday is a good day. Who does that with diets? It's like if I start on the Monday, that will work. So let me do that. It's like, no, just begin with whatever time you have right? It doesn't have to be a perfect hour, half hour. It can be 50 minutes. It can be 10 minutes. It can be in the car. But do something. Find some way. Because I'm pretty sure God hears more rumors of prayer than actual prayer, right? Like, I, I, I think we need to just, just start. Just find a time and make an appointment, Right? We do this for things that are important. Use your calendar. Look at your week ahead. If you've got kids, I know it's difficult. So speak with your spouse and say, we both value this. Let's, let's look at the week ahead and where can we help one another to shut the door? You know, is there a space where we can shut the door together? Where is there an opportunity for us to remove distraction, to find some privacy and to connect with Jesus? Secondly, be creative. Prayer and Bible reading are essential, right? We can't get away from that. It's been with the church for thousands of years. We need to pray, speak to God, connect with God, and we need to read his word. Those are essential, but there are other ways to connect, okay? Put on some worship music, go for a run. Pray while you run, pray while you walk. Prayer walks are amazing. I love the fact that I don't own a car now. I pray a lot more. Just pray walk. Journal, I love journaling. I was telling the kids one week, and I was saying, you know, Journaling, it sounds great, but when I started, I had one entry for the first year, 2009, one entry. Had a few more in 2010, and now it gets to a space where I can journal. I'm nowhere near as good as my wife. She journals like every day, like three pages. It's ridiculous. Goes through journals like you can't believe, right? And there's probably something I'm not even mentioning. Be creative. God's a creative God. Connect with him in creative ways. Begin, be creative, and lastly, be consistent, and two points on this, I, I felt a word that God gave me for this year was rhythm, right? Just rhythm, just establishing healthy rhythms. And, and the thing with the rhythm is, uh, it's kind of like when you're playing the drums, and you might not know what that's like, but just track with me here. When we're playing the drums, you can't just improvise all the time. You might be good at it, but it sort of ends up just becoming a whole lot of noise. You can't just sort of do random bits. You start with a basic beat, and then you add to it, and then you add another layer. And then you add, an, add another layer. So you start with the bass drum and it's just doof, 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 doof. And it seems boring. 
it seems like, okay, well, can we add something? And then you add something else, maybe a snare drum or something, right? But it's just that idea of a rhythm is built by starting with one thing and then adding layers, right? So start with that 10-minute prayer. And then when you're ready, add the next layer, add the next layer, add the next layer. Consistency, rhythm. I was listening, this is the second thing, I was listening to a leadership um, expert. His name is Simon Sinek, I think, or Sinek. He's really great guy to listen to. I don't agree with everything he says, but he was talking about this idea of consistency and leadership. And he was using these different examples to show how consistency really is the most important thing. Right, not just the elaborate moments, the big crescendo, but actually what really matters is the consistency. He was talking about things like brushing your teeth, right? If you, you can't just brush your teeth once for like 20 minutes and hope that's going to fix things. You've got to brush your teeth for two minutes every day. That's how you look after your teeth. He was talking about gym. I totally related to this one. He's like, who of us go to gym for maybe a week or go running for a week? You do some exercise for a week, and then you look in the mirror, and you're like, mm, nothing's really changed, you know? And you're like, and you're like, I'm gonna go. Like, you do it for like six hours, and you go back, and you're like, apart from looking really tired, nothing's changed. And you expect something to change overnight. And he's like, that's not how consistency works. But if you do it for 30 minutes every day, well, you'll start to see change down the line. He's saying it was the same thing with marriage. He's saying the big romantic gestures—they're great. You want them interspersed, but that's not why your spouse loves you. They love you because of the consistent moments where you pay attention, where you take interest, where you look after their needs instead of your own. The consistent faithfulness and loyalty. That's what makes the difference. It's the same thing with God. We need to just be consistent. Be consistent in prayer, in reading the Bible. Be creative, but most of all, begin. We need to start. We need to seek Him. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.